You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Um, have your Bible turned with me to Exodus 17. And today we're going to continue our study of the book of Exodus. And we're going to pick up where, where Jeff left off last week in chapter 15, verse, and we're going to pick it up in verse 22, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 17, verse 7. So we got a, we got a pretty big chunk of text today, so um, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to deviate from our normal practice of reading the entire text at the beginning, and instead we're going to read it progressively as we study the text. However, I do want us to stand for the reading of of the verse that I believe that serves as kind of a thesis statement for the entire text, and that is verse 7 of chapter 17. So flip over to chapter 17 of Exodus and look at verse 7, and then stand with me as we read God's Word. Exodus 17, 7 says, He named the place Massa and Meribah, Because the Israelites complained, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we we examine your word today, would you be present with us? Father, I plead with you not to allow any foolishness or untruths to be uttered from my mouth this morning. God, would I only speak right of you. And Father, for those of us here who, are, who hear the words that are spoken, would you, would you open their eyes that they may behold wondrous things from your law. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So, I entitled this message, Is the Lord Among Us or Not? Because I believe it's not just the question that the Israelites tested God with. It's also the same question that God repeatedly asks of the Israelites. It's the one that he forced them to answer in their text time and time again. And I think it's also a question that he repeatedly asks of us through the circumstances of our lives. As we go through this text, you're going to repeatedly see two themes played out. You're going to see this self-centered sinfulness of the Israelites. And you're going to see God's steadfast and grace-filled love for us. We're going to see several situations that God uses to reveal the hearts of the Israelites, followed by God's response to Israel's disobedience. So let's get started. And first, we're going to look at our first section, which is Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah. But, because, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. Marah means bitter. The people grumbled to Moses, What are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. 
The Lord made a statute and an ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. Now, the first thing I, I notice as we read this text, the very first word we run across is the word then. It says, then Moses led them, which means meaning then, like they just finished this party that Jeff, you know, talked about last week in the earlier part of 15. So they get this big, this massive worship service celebrating God's tremendous miracle at the Red Sea. And it says, then he immediately, following the conclusion of this party, they heads out to the wilderness. Now, the wilderness in Scripture almost always represents a place of, of transition and or a place of testing. In the case of the Israelites, they, they had just been miraculously rescued from being Egyptian slaves, but they were not yet at the promised land. The wilderness is what stood between the already and the not yet. And the very sad news that we see in our text is it took exactly three days. Three days for the Israelites to go from singing and dancing and shaking tambourines and gratitude to God to resuming their grumbling against Moses and God. The end of verse 25, we read, The Lord made a statute and ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. Mara was the first of, of several tests that the Lord puts before Israel in our text today. And I think before we look at these, it's really important that we understand the goal of God's testing. You see, when we test people, we test them to kind of figure out what's going on with them, right? That's not the case with God. God wasn't testing them because he was curious how they would respond. He knew their hearts. He knew exactly how they would respond. When he forced them to answer the question, is the Lord among us or not? You see, God's testing was so that the Israelites would see their own sinfulness and selfishness. The testing was for them, not for God. I think we see exactly God's intent for testing in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses is speaking in Deuteronomy 8. So keep your finger, keep your finger there in Exodus 15. And then, I don't know how you do that with a phone, really. Um, and then flip over to Deuteronomy 8. And in Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 11, we read, Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statues that I'm giving you today. When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold multiply, and everything you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had not known. 
in order to humble and test you so that in the end, he might cause you to prosper. What do we learn about wilderness sanctification? Right here, it's intended to do what? To humble us. It's intended to test us. And it's intended to lead us to the glorious inheritance that he has planned and promised to us. So we see this first, this first wilderness test in verse 23. It says, They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. And what was the Israelites' answer to the test in verse 24? The people grumbled to Moses, What are we going to drink? Now, let's be very clear here. When they asked that question, I'm pretty certain they weren't casually asking what type of drink God was going to provide to them, right? No. The fact that they were grumbling reveals that three days, three days after they watched God split a sea and drown an entire army, they were questioning whether God could provide something as basic as clean water. In other words, they were already beginning to doubt whether, in fact, the Lord was among them or not. Now, the only thing more surprising than, than Israel's rapid loss of faith is the Lord's response to Israel's grumbling. Now, of course, he would have every right to respond to them in anger and make them choose between bitter water or no water. That's the way you want to be. I mean, that's kind of like how, you know how we do with our kids. Like you, you, you either get what's on your plate or you get nothing. But he didn't do that. And he didn't because the point of the testing was not to punish them. The point of the test was to reveal to them their lack of trust. So instead of heaping them with, with shame on yous, he did what our loving, faithful Father God does. He provided a way for the bitter water to be made drinkable, right? And then as we move to chapter 16, God does what every good teacher does after a test is taken and failed. We retest. And so let's look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and sin. Now that's kind of a cool picture, but I think it's really more they Texts say it's really, it's a, that's short for Sinai, not necessarily that they're making the point of it's the valley of sin. Um, so they, is which is between Elam and Sinai, and on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Is the Lord among us or not? Test two. Fail. I mean, keep in mind right here, we're still, even at this point, we're still only about six weeks or about 45 days from their release from the brutal slavery. And the scripture says that the entire Israelite community, not some of them, 
It says the entire Israelite community is already looking back longingly at the good old days when they had all the slave rations that they wanted. Their charge against Moses and God was that, the, that he only brought them to the wilderness to kill them with hunger. Now, this, of course, is ludicrous on multiple levels. Not to mention, just weeks before, they were singing at the top of their lungs. We just read in earlier last week's message, with your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? Now add a little hunger, and suddenly they flip the script so that Pharaoh is now the faithful one who provided so generously, and God's the one who's about to kill him. And just to point out another kind of an obvious note of the insanity of their grumbling, I have a strong suspicion if it was a bunch of Texans out there instead of Israelites, instead of complaining, I got a feeling we'd be enjoying barbecue and hamburgers and steaks and lamb chops. Not to mention milk and maybe even a little cheese. I mean, if you go back to Exodus 12, you look at verse 38, when they left Egypt, it says they left Egypt with what? A huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. They had food. You see, what the test of the wilderness reveals is the true desire of their hearts. And the true desire of their hearts is not God. It's comfort. They desire the presence, TS, or the gifts of God far more than they desire the presence, CE, presence, or the fellowship of God. See, God was magnificent when he was like this magic genie who miraculously saved them. But add a little hunger, and suddenly he's a malicious despot intent on killing them, and their worship has turned to grumbling. It's a good thing we're never like that, right? I think earlier this week I was, I was suffering with some pretty intense tooth pain. And as I restlessly sat in, in, my, in my dentist's office, I, I happened to look up and I saw this message on his monitor that said, your comfort is our highest priority. Now, needless to say, as I sat there with my, with, with my throbbing jaw, those words spoke to me. I, 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 had, I had a new affection for, for my dentist at that point. The problem with the Israelites and with us is that we erroneously assume that our comfort is also God's highest priority. And it's not. Sorry to say it, but it's not. God's glory through our salvation and sanctification is his highest priority. So how will God respond to the accusations of, this, of his murderous intent? Well, let's keep reading in our text. Let's pick it up at verse, chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. 
On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about them. It strikes you that they're having to go back and have to remind them again that it was God who brought them out of the land of Egypt? That in itself is kind of sad, isn't it? Verse 8, Moses continued, The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud, the Lord's glory appeared. Stunning. Verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat, you may take two quarts per individual, according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Wow. Let's get this straight. They just accuse God who has so faithfully provided for them over and over and they accuse him of wanting to kill them and how does he respond? I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. I mean, now, none of us should be surprised that God rained something down from heaven on them, right? That it was a blessing of food rather than fire and brimstone is what is nothing short of stunning. Surely now they've learned the lesson that God is among them, that he is their provider and protector, right? Surely they know that I am the Lord, your God. He, he, just, he just appeared in a cloud. He, he rained food down on them. So if God were to give them a little pop quiz right now, surely they would pass this one with flying colors, right? Well, let's check it out. Verse 19, Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some of them left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. They gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Is the Lord among us or not? Test three. Fail. 
they still feel like God can't be trusted. By failing the test, they were saying, that is great that God provided for what I needed today, but how do I know he's going to do it again tomorrow? Therefore, I better get all I can and can all I get. What this shows here is that they put far more trust in their ability to hoard than God's ability to provide, right? Surely the rod's coming now. I mean, I know if it was me, I probably would have gone full manna Nazi on him. Is that how you're going to do with me? Fine, no manna for you. But that's not our good shepherd, is it? What does he do? Like a loving parent, he simply creates boundaries so that they can't hoard the food, so they can't disobey. They can't give in to greed. The quail rots by morning and the manna melts by noon. Now let's get on the saddle and let's try this again. So while this lesson is, is fresh, he decides to give him another quick pop quiz just so surely they'll get it right this time, right? Surely. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded and it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Verse 27, yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. And then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you are to stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Is God among us or not? Test four. Fail. This is getting ridiculous, right? God has provided twice as much food, and he made it so it wouldn't rot and it wouldn't melt on the Sabbath. So it wasn't that they were hungry. It wasn't that they didn't have access to food. This seems like a super easy test. What, so what did this reveal in their hearts? It reveals that, though, that we still insisted on doing things their way instead of God's, right? It's the same thing that has motivated every sin since the original sin in the garden. We want to be God. The mutation in our DNA that occurs because of the fall is the unabashed desire for autonomy. We see it, the, the power struggle that every parent experiences with their children from the earliest age is simply the byproduct of a universal heart disease that all of us have towards God. We want to form God into our image 
rather than accept that we were created in His. Israel's tragic failures in the wilderness is is simply a confirmation of a truth that the Apostle Paul tells us about in Romans 8. Where he says, "The the, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This cycle could go on and on and on. They're not going to get it right. God's purpose in testing the Israel wasn't in hope that they would finally figure it out. No, it was to make them painfully aware to them and us that without a spiritual transplant, we are all incapable of getting it right. We'll never get it right. No matter how many tests, no matter how easy it makes it for us. And that leads us to the stunning conclusion to this text. We're going to come back to verse 31 and through 36 in a moment. But for now, I want us to jump to chapter 17, where we see the final test in our text today. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 17, we read this. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children, our livestock with thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. Is the Lord among us or not? Test five. Fail. And what what we see in this, this tragic narration is that not only do they fail the test yet again, But this time they take the rebellion to another level, don't they? Some other translations, instead of using the word complained, use the word quarreled or contended. In other words, they move now beyond just grumbling to now making demands and accusations against Moses. And as we know, their accusations were really against God. You know the old saying, if you point your finger at someone, that, that you're pointing three back at yourself? You know what I never noticed anybody point out to me before? That that only counts for four of your fingers. Where's the other one pointing? The biggest one of all. Just saying. In Psalm 95, God lets us know exactly what was going on in this scene. Beginning at the end of verse 7 in Psalm 95, we read this. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Psalm 95 points out the true tragedy of what was taking place here in chapter 17. First, we see that their hearts had gone from grumbling to becoming hard. Grumbling hearts will always 
eventually become hardened hearts, won't they? They will. Ungrateful hearts will inevitably become bitter, accusing hearts. And that's exactly what has happened here in the wilderness. In just a few short weeks, the Israelites have gone from singing, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. And now they have put this very same God on trial for heaven's sakes. Instead of God testing them for their good, they're testing God to their own harm. Now, if, if, if you've checked out so far this morning and haven't heard a word I've said, I'm going to beg you to stop and give me your undivided attention for the next few minutes. Because the drama of a what is about to happen is nothing short of jaw-dropping. This is now the fifth time in our text that Israel has failed to correctly answer the question, is God among us or not? But now they haven't just grumbled and obeyed. Now they're accusing God of the capital crime of attempted murder against an entire nation. And they're about to sentence Moses to death for what they perceive to be God's crime. Now, reading this, you, we all got to be thinking this is about to go very, very badly for Israel, right? They're now condemning the very God who has is, who is so graciously rescued them from slavery and has provided for their daily needs. Surely God's patience has run out and judgment is about to rain down. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff that you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. God's saying here, okay, you want to put me on trial? Let's do it. Let's set the scene. Let's set up the courtroom. Israel, you're the prosecutors. I want you to line up on both sides. And Moses, I want you to walk right through the middle of the people, and I want you to do it holding the staff that you used to strike the Nile. I don't think it's insignificant here that it's a stat, that it's, he's not using the stat that he used to part the Red Sea. You see, the same stat that he used to bring rescue was also used to bring judgment, wasn't it? And I think God wants him to know that the staff that's about to be used here is the one that's going to bring judgment. This is the staff that struck the Nile and turned it to blood. This is the staff that brought the judgment of frogs and gnats and flies and boils and hail and locusts. This is the staff to turn daylight into darkness for three days. He says, Moses, I want you to take that staff and I want you to get the leaders and the judges around you and I want you to walk right in front of all the people with that holding that staff in front of you. At this point, you've got to believe the Israelites had to be quaking in their boots. At least some of them had to be thinking, we are so dead. We pushed it too far. He's going to wipe us off the face of the earth. So let's read verse 6. 
find out what God did with this staff of judgment. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Unbelievable. I think it's first, let's take note of where they are. I mean, when was the last time that Moses was at Horeb? You go back to chapter 3, right? It's where God appeared in the burning bush. Horeb is where God launched his mission to rescue his people from physical slavery. And now Horeb is the same place where he decides to paint an image of how he's going to rescue his people from their slavery to sin. A capital crime had been committed, so a capital punishment must be handed down. So Moses, obeying God, he reached back, he took the staff, and he struck down the staff of judgment right down on God himself. God took the judgment. The people got living water. There is no question that chapter 17 is God painting a vivid foreshadowing of what would happen a couple thousand years later on a rocky hill called Calvary. And if you, just in case you think I'm taking a license, the Apostle Paul makes it perfectly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, where he says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in, a, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Verse 6. When you hit the rock, Water will come out of it, and the people will drink. That's the gospel. That's the amazing news of why we are sitting here today. God took the rod of punishment. He took the punishment for our crimes upon himself, and as a result, from him flows life-giving water. Don't kid ourselves. We're no better than the Israelites we would fail the test over and over and over again as well. And the reason Jesus could take our punishment on that, why he could stand in front of that rock and why he could take the blows of punishment is because he's the only one who ever passed the testing of the wilderness. When we read about the temptation of Christ for 40 days in the wilderness in the New Testament, he passed it perfectly. When faced with hunger, instead of grumbling, what did he answer? It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when, when he was tempted to put God to the test, he answered, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Jesus is indeed the truer and better Israel. 
He is also the truer and better rock. As we read in John 7, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is clearly borrowing the imagery from Exodus 17 here. The message of Exodus 17 is also the image, also the message of Isaiah 53. And he was despised, and we didn't value him. He himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But in turn, we regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep and we've all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. As Pastor Jeff has said many times in this series, the story of Exodus is the story of us. God made a way for us to be saved from the penalty of our sin. He knew that we would, we would spin cycle and rebellion and fail the test time after time after time. And God wants us to see it, but we don't. He will continually put us in situations where we have to answer the question of Exodus 17, is the Lord among us? Or not. Our text says that the people tested God with this question. Clearly, God is asking us this same question. God answered the question repeatedly with a resounding yes. I am with you. But what about us? Are you more defined by your grumbling or your gratitude? Do you question why God allowed you to be with the spouse you have? Why he allowed you to lose your job? Why your, maybe why your kids turned out like they did? Why he allowed a, a loved one to die at a young age? Why did he allow you to get cancer or some other disease or allows you to suffer in some way that you weren't expecting? Life isn't turning out the way that you thought it should. You're not as comfortable as you want to be. Your life may seem tougher for you than others. I could go on and on. What's your grumble? How is your life answering no to the question that God is among us? Is God among us or not? We can all come here and sing like, like the Israelites did and, 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 and earlier in chapter 15. But the real test is what happens when the when the wilderness comes. And the good news is with God's grace, we can pass the test with a resounding yes. Not in our own strength, not by, by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Earlier I read in, in, uh, in, in Romans 8, where it shows the downside, you know, that we're, we cannot, in our flesh, we cannot please God. But the good news is right after that in verse 9, it says, you, however, 
If, you are, if, if, if Christ is in you, it says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. You skip down to verse 12, it says, so then, brothers and sisters, listen, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We can answer the question rightly. We can, we can answer like, like Abraham, who when he could have had a grumbling heart because it seemed like God was about to kill his only promised son, what was his response? God will provide a substitute sacrifice. Noah answered yes. When asked if God is among us or not, he did it by defying all logic and building an ark in the middle of a desert. Daniel answered yes when the test came, when he chose to pray and give thanks to God, even though he knew the penalty was going to be to be thrown into a den of lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the question rightly when facing a fiery furnace by saying, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of a blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Is the Lord among us or not? Yes. Esther answered yes. When, when to save her people, she said, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Paul answered yes when he said in Philippians, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. I could go on and on with examples throughout Scripture as well as history of saints who triumphantly answered yes to the question, is God among us or not? Not in their own strength. And now it's up to us. Are our lives going to be defined by grumbling or gratitude? Be encouraged by the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 31.8. This is some of the last words of Moses before he died. This is at the end here, about the end of the promised land. He's given his final charges to them. And this is what he This is one of the things he said as part of his, as part of his final speech. Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. The last words of Jesus on earth is, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Redeemer, is the Lord among us? your answer today is yes, please respond by shouting, He is. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.